Hello and welcome again to another episode of our program, Develop. It is our honor and privilege to have your company as we continue our discussions of our series, Our Holiness Movement. Our Holiness Movement essentially is all about the Christian brand that Jesus came, died and rose again in order to launch on planet earth. Jesus didn't come to give me and to give you a ticket to heaven and then we live on earth the same way that we've always lived. Those types of brand of Christianity, uh, they they possibly uh, unintentionally being communicated to attract people as if like we do an advertisement where we share all the good things about this brand but we don't tell people that they have to actually assemble it at home and it's gonna take a couple of hours to do that (laughs) but the reality is the brand of Christianity that is uh, characterized by Christ likeness and uh, and when we live in a holy life that's set apart for God's exclusive use and that is the best way We can live our lives. Why? Because it's the reason why God created us. He's put the functionality in us that is so desperate to be expressed outwardly. But when we suppress them because we don't understand the reality of what God has in mind for us, we don't live a satisfied life. Our best life is a life that embraces this holiness movement, this Christ-likeness in our daily endeavors. And we mentioned that there are three things that we're going to address in this series to make a case for holiness. Number one, the foundations, which we are in the midst of that right now, uh, expressing biblically why should we pursue a life of holiness and Christ-likeness. Then in the next few episodes, we're going to look at our failure to live that out and uh, dismissing some of the biblical warnings before us, which uh, eventually makes us indifferent to holiness. Then uh, for several weeks after that, we're going to look at the factors will enable us to live Christ-like life and live a holy life as per God's plan for us. So today I'm going to continue uh, the foundations of our, uh, the reasons why, the rationale, the why we pursue a life of Christ-likeness and holiness. And I want to look at that from the perspective of the Apostle Paul's goal and dream and passion in life. And I'm going to propose and submit to you if it's Paul's dream and passion for his ministry to bring about a Christ-like movement, a holiness movement, then it ought to impact us and be the motivation why we want to live that out. And Essentially, what I would like to share with you may be a little confronting because if we have seen ministries or we have been part of ministries or if we're leaders in particular church environments, we have our own perspective of the end goal of ministry. And by no means I'm here to undermine your goal. I'm simply hoping to promote the goal that Paul had for his ministry. I recall several years ago, I went to a meeting, a denominational meeting, where we had several pastors attending a training seminar. 
And obviously after the morning session, we were able to interact with other participants in the breakout rooms, having tea and coffees and, and, and some refreshments. I didn't know a particular pastor in that room, and uh, as I was getting my coffee, he was standing nearby, so I shook his hand and I introduced myself uh, and my name and the church where I'm from. Within few seconds, I would maybe be gracious and say within few minutes, he was able to uh, inject uh, the history of his ministry in this particular church and how large his church congregation is. And it took me by surprise, I must say. I hadn't shared anything about how big or how small or what our church size is. I haven't mentioned anything about ministry. I simply was interacting with him as a human to a human. I, I was gobsmacked that he needed within few minutes to share with me the number of people who attend the Sunday service. And as a side note, a couple of months later, my son encountered someone from that very church and discovered that the numbers that this pastor had told me were pretty inflated, which is maybe accidental. But the reality is, why are pastors so fired up about sharing the numbers of people who attend their sermons every Sunday? Why are pastors so connected to and feel valued by the size of their empire? I don't know. I know that when pastors interact together, it's one of the very first topics that gets exposed. How large is your church? Whether that's a subtle question or whether that's an overt out there question. If the purpose of our ministry is to, to have plenty of people in pews, if the purpose and the success indicators of our ministry is to have a lot of people participate on a Sunday gathering, then by all means, that gives us value and that excites us, that enables us to feel fulfilled and a sense of achievement. And that's why it's so intermingled uh, in our mind that the size of the church and the success of our ministries are linked together as if that's the end goal of our ministry. And I don't know if you're a leader of a small group or if you're a leader of an environment or whether you're a pastor or whether you just have embraced this idea of the purpose of ministry is being large. Being large and multiplying large and all that stuff that really tickles our ego. And ministry, the end goal, can become ego-driven. How can I stand out and be different and more successful than others? Or our, our intention to uh, preach and teach and all of that is about the ears of the microphone magic environments. If, if I have to invest in people so they can grow spiritually, that requires a lot of effort. 
If I merely teach and teach the gospel and teach biblical uh, uh, ideas and doctrines and assertions and beliefs, that's easy. And some people specialize in that as the goal of their ministry. Others look at what's external. If we talk about things that promote external uh, behaviors or if they basically external to the heart where it's building cognitively our understanding of Christianity but it's not impacting the way we live, guess what? That becomes really easy for us to feel uh, no guilt whatsoever if we're not practicing what we preach. Because if all we're talking about is cognitive uh, and assertions and beliefs and doctrines, well, that's okay. Unless you are digging deep to find application, you could live whatever life as a leader, as a preacher, as a teacher. You could live completely an immoral life, but be an incredible teacher of those uh, 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 theoretical concepts. But look with me at what Paul places as the heart, the passion, and the end goal of his dream in ministry. It all starts with Jesus' dream. Jesus' uh, uh, dream for his, uh, for his disciples and in turn the world is expressed in Matthew chapter 28 where he says, Therefore, before he left planet earth, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Paul's mission in life must have been fully inspired by Christ's dream what we call the Great Commission. It's not the Great Suggestion. It's not the Great Option. It's the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. That what had uh, fired up Paul's heart. And he doesn't say make converts. He says make disciples. We have articulated the gospel message as if all that Jesus wants is people to make decisions. I am a Christian now and live as you wish. No, make a disciple. The word disciple, uh, the followers of Jesus in the first century would have understood it the same way that they lived with him as disciples. It's the same rabbianic type of uh, apprenticeship where people join the rabbi in order to learn what the rabbi teaches, but most importantly, to be like, like the rabbi, to represent the rabbi. So Jesus was saying, make people who would live like me because I'm the invisible image of God, which we were created to bear. So return people back to the original image that they were created to bear. And he mentions two primary things that they need to do in order to make disciples. Number one, to baptize, and number two, to teach. What is baptism? Baptism isn't just an external activity where you immerse someone under the water. 
Paul tells us in the book of Romans that we have been united in Christ in baptism. So we died our old self in the water. That's why we immerse people, that they nearly drown in water if you don't pick them up pretty quickly. Uh, so they drown their old life in order to get up in the newness of life. Guess what is that? That is a change of our identity. Just like Isaiah had damaged his lips in order for God to create a new pure lips. It's a, it's a, it was a statement of his identity much the same way. We are baptized into Christ. We drown our old life in order to rise up in the newness of life. And what's the newness of life? It's united. To the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, united to the triune God. Paul says that we have been united with Him in baptism. That means my new life, my new person, my new identity is shaped primarily by my unity with Jesus. That's the restoration of the identity that God created us to bear when He created us in His own image that we would bear His resemblance. And secondly, He says to them, and teach them to obey everything. Notice, He does not say, teach them everything. That would be more of a cognitive orientation to the teaching. He says, no, no, the teaching is important, but what is underneath that, what is undergirding that is obedience to the teaching, and that is God-ordained calling to live obedient to the ways and the standards and to express the nature of Jesus that is articulated in His teaching, right? He taught by word, He taught by example, and in John 15 he, and John 13, He invited the disciples to imitate that life. That means our calling is to live like Jesus. Our identity is, uh, uh, is confirmed in baptism that we're united to Jesus. Our calling is affirmed in our obedience to His life. And then this particular way of living, this particular way of changing the world one disciple at a time was not meant to be limited to Jerusalem. Jesus says to the disciples in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus had an incredible dream for His movement. He intended that everyone, everywhere would encounter the message and the love of Jesus and be transformed identity and calling everywhere. However, the disciples... Um, after the day of Pentecost, when they received the Spirit, they were so busy functioning in Jerusalem that they didn't really venture outside their comfort zone until we read of a persecution that occurs after, uh, after the uh, martyrdom um, uh, of Stephen and the persecution occurs in the church and people run away and scattered away. 
And as they scattered away in Acts chapter 8, we read that they preached the gospel everywhere, particularly in Samaria. There was a beginning of an expansion. And, um, and however, in the midst of all of that, even though they uh, went to regions where there were Gentiles and Jews, that the full-blown activity, missionary activity to the ends of the earth only began once God got hold of Saul, whom we know as the Apostle Paul. On his journey to Damascus to persecute more Christians, Jesus appeared to him, he knocked him off his horse, and he summoned him to a new life to change his world by introducing Jesus to the Gentile world. And, uh, and after this encounter with Paul, uh, Jesus also appeared to a, a Christian leaders, Ananias, and told him to look after Paul and to uh, teach him and to uh, uh, commission him to do the work that God had intended for him. And Ananias was a little scared when he was invited to meet with Saul. And he says, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man, Saul, and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem because he was a persecutor of the Christians. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Look at this amazing description of Paul's calling. He's to, is a chosen instrument to proclaim my name, to, to declare the name of Jesus. And indeed, we read about his first uh, uh, commissioning into the, the, the Gentile journey, first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, where they are Barnabas and Paul are summoned by the Holy Spirit to be set apart for the work that he has for them, which is the missionary pioneering work in Gentile territories. And the, the church prays and fasts and sends them away. And at the conclusion of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, they were returning back to Antioch, the center from where they were sent. And this is the summary of their work. In Acts 14, 21 to 23, it says they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Look at the three summary key uh, points of their missionary journey and their ministry philosophy. Number one, they preached the gospel. And as a result of preaching the gospel, people discovered Jesus and they win many people to the faith. 
Secondly, they strengthen those disciples. Notice it never mentions converts. It says a large number of disciples were one, and they gone back to strengthen those disciples. And what are they saying to them? They encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Because just because you discovered Jesus and made a decision, it doesn't mean you remain true. There is the perseverance of the saints. We need to be diligent daily to walk with God and to love on Him by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by our own power, to remain in the faith. And the third point is to appoint elders that will replicate the process, that will multiply disciples, that they will look after the, the new Christian uh, disciples that have been won to Christ. And in the midst of all of that, Paul uh, um, was experiencing an incredible revival, if you like. He would go from one city to another and a great number of people would come to know Jesus and he would get persecuted, sometimes stoned, sometimes kicked out of the city, sometimes hurt and misunderstood and betrayed. Regardless what he went through, he was noticing that God was anointing the work profoundly and a lot of people were coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And he would have three missionary journeys, one of which ended in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, where it impacted the entire region that when we read in the book of Revelation of the churches there, they were established and planted as a result of the multiplication of the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. In every way, Paul was a pioneer missionary. He was an incredible evangelist. He was a, an insane multiplier of disciples and church planter. But I want to share with you that this very person had a very clear goal that he describes in the book of Colossians. And that book is written uh, whilst Paul was in a prison in Rome ar around 60 AD or so. Uh, and he writes to refute false teachers, uh, maybe the first expressions of the Gnostic uh, heresy in that area. And Paul writes to the believers to esteem Jesus, to highlight that He is supreme above everything else, to say that in Him is the fullness of God, to esteem Christ. And then he brings the implication of that on his ministry. The supremacy, supremacy of Christ enabled him to focus his ministry on one end goal and put all his energy in that goal. That goal is going to make you think twice about any other end goal that we may have for our ministry. Look at what he says. He says, I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the, to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentile the glorious riches of this ministry, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So notice here Paul is saying, because this amazing, incredible person, 
I have dedicated my life commissioned by God to declare Him and His glorious riches and to, to reveal the mystery that I've been hidden in for many generations that Christ can be in people, the triune God can inhabit people and that is really the hope of glory. So He has uh, declared Jesus declared the mystery of the gospel and he attracted people who have received Christ. That is basically their salvation, right? But he keeps going and say, Jesus Christ is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why Paul? He says, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. What is Paul saying here? That even though those people have received Christ, these people have encountered salvation. What he continues to do is to admonish and teach so that everyone that means every disciple may be fully mature in Christ. Paul was not satisfied with mediocre Christianity. Paul was not satisfied with half-cooked believers. Uh, Paul was not satisfied with half the ministry of proclaiming Christ as Savior and leaving people to just live as converts in whichever way they want. No, he wanted them to be mature. In fact, in the next book that he wrote or the next letter that he wrote again from his prison uh, for two years in, in, in Rome, he expresses what maturity is all about. He says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. What does that mean, Paul? Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Maturity is living out our Christ-likeness, is growing more and more to the fullness of Christ that gets exhibited here on earth in us gradually until it will be fully manifested and perfected in us in eternity. I love the message paraphrase when it says, until we're all moving rhythmically and easy with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son, Fully mature adults, that is, fully develop within and without, fully alive like Christ. This is the heart of Paul, my friends. He didn't just invest in mission work. He didn't just invest in church planting. He's working with everyone. And I mean everyone to help them to become mature. It's not a, manufacture, manuf a manufacturing of believers. It's actually raising believers. He says that in Colossians that he strenuously worked with all the energy that God works so powerfully in him. The word strenuously work or labor actually means laboring to the point of exhaustion. So Paul wants everyone to be made like Christ. 
that he labors to the point of exhaustion, that he's giving his absolute best, his energy, his time, his affection, his resources, his sacrificing for others, his praying for others, his wrestling in prayer that they may know God fully and reveal him gradually. In fact, he gives another illustration of that strenuous labor, which I as a male don't understand fully. But he says in Galatians 4.19, my dear children, for whom I'm again in the pains of childbirth. I know that's a bad thing until Christ is formed in you. Paul is saying, I'm like a woman giving birth. You give birth one at a time, by the way, unless you're twin or triplets, but it's a very concentrated attention on few individuals. He's not just talking about a, a, a mass production of, of Christ-like people. He's investing in people until, that's the end goal, Christ is formed in you. Any other end goal than that is not biblical, is not apostolic, is not worthy of our investment of all energies and all resources and all sacrifices. That is the only God-honoring goal for every minister. The reason why we are motivated as believers to pursue holiness, to help ourselves and others and others to help others to live like Christ in the world. The grounding of that, the motivation of that is because it is the passionate end goal of the apostolic ministry and every genuine disciple of Jesus. Paul labored to the point of exhaustion to help believers live live like Jesus. Wouldn't it be a worthy cause for us to build our entire lives and ministries, to see God's dream for believers, the passionate desires of His people, the end goal of the apostolic ministry, that people will be more like Jesus. When you, when you say, I fish them and you clean them, you are removing the responsibility of yourself that God placed on you to present everyone mature, Christ-like, it is a worthy cause that deserves us to think twice about the dream that Jesus has for us to live Christ-like lives, holy lives for the glory of God and the good of people around us. Thank you so much for being with us as we discuss this holiness movement and looking forward to our next episode. Until then, be utterly blessed.